those that are joining us online. Uh, and I'd like to give a shout out to the people that make it possible to put this online. Uh, the people that we've got in the back, Pastor Tracy and John Mark and Bill, uh, we've got a, a solid sound crew back there. And I just uh, want to let you guys know we love and appreciate you very much. Thank you. All right, we are in the Gospel of Mark chapter 13, if you'd like to turn there in your Bibles. <coughs> Excuse me. We're in the last week of the life of Jesus, and it is instructive to me that one of the most important things on his mind was the future. He wanted to equip his disciples for what they were going to face in their generation, which was going to be hardship and persecution. Every one of them lost their lives due to ungodly people, and they were viciously persecuted. John, they tried to boil in oil three times, and when they couldn't, they exiled him to the island of Patmos, where he recorded for us at least the book of Revelation and perhaps the Gospel of John. So I'm grateful that God is the one who preserves life, but Jesus wants the church to know what the signs of the times are. They're all around us. Can I tell you? Biblically, the Bible talks about an end times alliance between nations that have never, never been historically aligned before. Russia and China and Iran is a triple axis of evil if ever there was one. All of them are possessed by the forces of the Antichrist. All of them are opposed to Christianity in any of its forms. And we have never seen historically an alliance between those three superpowers before. Sometimes in looking at biblical prophecy, 90% of which has already been fulfilled in all of Scripture, you can't doubt the remaining 10%. God has a perfect track record. But the Bible does talk about in these prophetic books what is coming, and we should anticipate that. So we saw the nation of Israel reborn in 1948. Some of us weren't alive to see that. Some of us were. But the thing is, with this alliance between China and Russia and Iran right now, you have a triumvirate of evil that looks a lot like the Antichrist, the false prophet, and Satan empowering both of them in the book of Revelation. The book uh, of the prophecies of Daniel tell us these things. And Ezekiel as well. We're living in the last of the last days. And the reason that Jesus thought it was important enough to bring it up to his guys is it's a difficult church age to live in. The most difficulty was faced by the early church and the apostles that were viciously persecuted for the first 400 years of their existence right up to the time of Constantine. Today what we face is a far more insidious attack against the church, and it is lukewarmness. You'll remember the last church that was addressed in the book of Revelation was the church at Laodicea, as Jesus seems to chronicle these church ages that are epitomized in those seven churches. The last one he talks about was Laodicea, that there seemed to be a lot of people there. They seemed to have all the outward signs of success, and yet Jesus said, you're proud and you're arrogant, you're blind, and you don't even know it. You're not even aware of your true spiritual condition. And Jesus said, because you're lukewarm, where you're neither hot nor cold, I will vomit you out of my mouth. That is exactly what the Greek says in that passage. It is not a situation where the church can be comfortable because comfort leads to complacency. 
It always does. Throughout all of history, you see a democracy never stands. If you study the Greeks, if you study the Romans, both of which societies were democratic at one point where they were the people elected their leaders to the land. They always devolved ultimately into a governmental takeover of all life within the empire. I'm very concerned about America where we look to the government to handle everything and take everything and, and we want them to take from us and give to the poor. And If you can't afford a house now and you've got a good credit rating, well, let's take away from your credit rating and give it to... That's called socialism. And the more we say, I'm okay with socialism, understand you're okay with the death of democracy. And those forces, if you ever study people like Trotsky or Lenin or any of the early communist fathers, they are bent on the destruction of Christianity. They accomplish that by infiltrating it. In China at the present day, oh, you can have church as long as it's the state-sponsored church. They'll tell you what they want you to hear, and they are destroying all other churches that oppose to them. But they will tell you, no, we're not opposed to the church. Look, look at this. We've got our three-party church in place here. If you don't go to it, of course, we will kill you. And their churches have nothing to do. Jesus said all of the things that we see today are the beginning of birth pains. Birth pains. In other words, yeah, you <laughs> I heard a woman go, oh, <laughs> are you having birth pains? Are you okay? <laughs> Jesus described the end times event as birth pains because the things that we see today, the social upheaval, the chaos, the world in, in, in uproar and wars, rumors of wars, economic things going on and plagues, which Jesus had described will be one of the things of the end times. He said, look for all of these things to increase in frequency and intensity. The thing is, the end times church doesn't care. In fact, if you look at that word lukewarm in Revelation 3, uh, where Jesus is talking to the church at Revelation, it could be interpreted unengaged in society. It could be interpreted don't care about what's going on in society. It could be interpreted self-centered, narcissistic, Obsessed with technology instead of God. And I think that you would have to admit there are those elements in society today. Don't let them inside of you. I'm not here to say let's go all go out in the parking lot and burn our cell phones. But some of you should. I don't know how important your cell phone is to you, but I encourage you from time to time to turn it off and actually talk to a human being face to face. There's a novel concept, huh? Mike, I wanted to shout out to you and say thank you for showing me about the quarter that we were talking about a couple of weeks ago. Thank you, buddy. I appreciate that about people in the congregation. I, I get all sorts of little notes like, like for Mike and questions and stuff like that. Feel free. If you have any questions or thoughts or ideas or observations out there, you can always drop it in any of the offering plates or the boxes out front or leave a, uh, a notice on the, on the church. Call the phone list. Leave a message. Love to hear from you guys. It's your church. I'm just the pastor teacher, but you're every bit as important as what goes on here as, as anybody who's on staff. 
So I appreciate your input. But this end times discourse, it's called the Olivet Discourse because as Jesus is leaving the Temple Mount and all of the guys there are so impressed with the architecture. Oh, thank you, Tracy. Lord bless you, buddy. There's plenty of honey in it this time. Thank you. I love you, man. <laughs> I'll tell you what. If any of you need the best associate pastor in the world, they, they don't come better than Tracy. You're a good man, Tracy. Thank you. I don't know what's going around the pastoral staff, but we all have this throat thing going on. I don't quite understand. It's not just the staff. I'm glad to hear that. <laughs> so in Mark chapter 13, understand how important this topic is to Jesus. That he's willing, as they come down from the Temple Mount, it's the last of his life, it's the last week of his life. I mean, if it was the last week of your life and you knew it, what would you be talking about? I would be. I'd be talking about Jesus and his coming for me sooner than the rest of you. And you should be envious if I'm on my way out before you. That's a glorious thing. That's promotion day. But Jesus is telling his disciples before he comes back to establish his kingdom, there's this period of time for the last 2,000 years now where he's at work in the world, but he's at work in the church as well. And because you and I are the church, it's important that we understand what's coming. The disciples needed to know what was coming, so Jesus transitions from a regional judgment against Jerusalem and the Jewish nation, and then he morphs that, it segues, if you will, into the book of Revelation and the end times judgment, because the one prefigures the other. It is a judgment of God, one on a regional scale, book of Revelation, on a global scale. So Jesus segues between the two. Because his disciples need to know that they will be viciously persecuted and what to do about that. But also last day's believers will face the same sort of thing. They were impressed with the architecture. I, I don't be impressed with architecture. Ooh, fancy church. Ooh, fancy buildings. Ooh, look at this. Ooh, they got that. And Jesus said, you see all these buildings? Not one stone will be left on top of another. Everyone will be thrown down. Herod had been building this thing for a long, long, long time. In fact, it wasn't completed until just four years before the destruction of Jerusalem. And Jesus was going to warn them against that. Don't put your faith in a building. You are the church. This is just the building. This is a building called Calvary Chapel Eastside, but you are the church. This is just a convenient structure with air conditioning and plush seats and stuff like that. Keeps us warm in the winter, cool in the summer. It's a blessing, but don't, uh, don't ever worship the church. Don't worship the building. The places that they do. I was born in New York City many years ago, but there was this huge church downtown Manhattan called St. Patrick's Cathedral. And it is singularly the most impressive structure I've ever seen built by man. The spires reach up to the heavens, which was the intent of the original architects. It's a beautiful building. Do you know what the church attendance averages on Sunday? The altar of this church is so large, it would occupy the entire footprint of this building, over 18,000 square feet. That's just their altar. Their pew-sitting area and the, and the alcoves off to the side. It is amazingly huge. And you look up and the ceiling goes up forever. You know how many people average attendance on Sunday? None, because they closed the church. It's now a tourist attraction. Isn't that sad? 
one of the most beautiful churches in the entire world. Jesus and God are not impressed with architecture or size or anything else. We do. We're impressed by that stuff today. Ooh, ah, bigger, better, grander. And we then make the mistake of equating that with, oh, God must be blessing that church. Look how big they are. And yet some of the most vigorous pastors and most godly pastors I've ever known pastor little bitty churches. A guy out in a Kansas wheat field pastored for 35 years to a, a congregation of 35 people. I think he's got a front row seat in heaven. He wasn't impressed with, with buildings or architecture or making a name for himself or setting his legacy out there, whatever that means. I want Jesus to be glorified. I don't want my fingerprints or name on anything. It's not called Jim Etheridge Calvary Chapel. It's called Calvary Chapel because our eyes are on Christ. I don't want my name attached to, to anything. The legacy I want to leave will be born out in my children and my children's children and in you. These people that I've been able to touch over these many years now, and it's been my privilege to serve you. But you can't exalt a man either because men come and go. Pastors die. God takes them home. These things are not the end of the age just because the pastors go on home to be with the Lord. But don't be impressed with the architecture as they was, they were. And then Jesus said in, in verse 5 of chapter 13, I want you to be careful that you're not deceived. And he's talking to believers. You can be deceived about money, materialism, the things of this world, what's important to God and what is not important. The things sometimes that are so important in the world don't even hit God's radar. He doesn't care about that stuff. The church has become obsessed with the things that don't touch the heart of God. And we've become rather lukewarm about the things that do touch the heart of God. The last thing Jesus said before he ascended into heaven is, go and make disciples everywhere in the world. But the church has not succeeded in that quest. And we're okay with that. The church, by and large, doesn't share its faith. And, and people are, on their, are going to hell on a daily basis. And and uh, I think that we have forgotten that we're living in the last days and that our days of opportunity are, in fact, limited. Jesus said these birth pains, you have to go, verse 9, you're going to have to be on your guard because you guys, you, my disciples, you're going to be hauled into the synagogues and councils and flogged. You're going to stand before governors, make a defense of your faith. Things are going to be hard for you guys. And then he segues. He says it'll not only be hard for you then, but in verse 12, in the last days as well as in the disciples' day and age, brother will betray brother to death and a father to his child. Children will rebel against their parents and have them put to death. And that's interesting, noting the rebellion of children against their parents. Of course, we have no problem with that in our church, do we? All our kids are perfect, holy, and godly and never squawk, never mess their diapers and change themselves. All men will hate you because of me, Jesus said in verse 13, but he who stands firm to the end will be saved. It is difficult. It was very difficult in the first century for these guys to face the thought of persecution. In fact, the whole brother and sister thing that Peter had to live out, that where the Romans had grabbed him about the year 67, 68, that winter that spanned those, that, those two years, he was brought up on charges of insurrection by the Roman authorities, only they didn't crucify him first. They crucified his wife and forced him to watch. 
And they said, if you will just recant your Christianity, if you will just tell the people, no, this whole thing is a lie and a hoax and Christ isn't the King of kings and Lord of lords, he's not the Messiah. If you will just recant your faith, we will take your wife down off the cross and attend to her wounds. And he could not do it, but instead ministered to his wife, prayed with his wife, encouraged her and blessed her, while for 72 hours she hung on that cross. You and I have never known that kind of hardship. I encourage you, don't use the word persecution in regards to anything that you and I go through unless you're nailed to a cross or you're forced to watch your children fed to wild animals in the Colosseums. Unless you have nails driven through your hands and feet, don't use the word persecution. You've never known what persecution is. We get a flat tire and we think that's persecution. They, they laugh at us at work because of our beliefs. Oh, you believe, believe in Easter Bunny and his resurrection. No, you know, you're confusing the, the two issues, but they'll mock and make fun. That's not persecution. <clears throat> There may come a point in time, in fact, it is on this planet, that is found in other third world countries where there is persecution. It's easy for us to underestimate how difficult a time of real persecution can be. We, a few Christians in the Western world, face persecution of any kind, but Christians in other parts of the world today do. For instance, if I had come from an Orthodox Jewish family, they might consider me a blasphemer and count me dead for choosing Jesus, whom they have rejected as the Messiah. In other words, you don't exist anymore. You don't have a mother, father, sister, and brother. You're exiled. You're gone. Nobody thinks about you, talks about you, or cares about you just because you accepted Jesus. If I came from a strict Muslim family, uh, I would run the chance of being rejected by my family and literally killed for just saying the name Jesus. They see it as blasphemy. If I came from a Hindu family today, in this day and age, in India, I would be rejected and could potentially be martyred and my church burned down for simply sharing God's word from the pulpit. That happens on a regular basis in places like that. In China, I'd be allowed to practice Christianity, but only in the state-sponsored church. All other churches are persecuted viciously my church would probably be one of the 1,500 or so destroyed and shut down since just November of the year 2000. They're out there persecuting the church. Unless you're a member of the Three Self-Patriotic Movement. Now, there's a name for a church. The TSPM, it's the only government-sanctioned, quote, patriotic Christian church recognized in China. But if you dare mention the name of Christ... You're imprisoned. So they have church but no Jesus. They have church but no Bibles. They have church that's not church, but that's all the state will allow. All others are persecuted, banned, churches burned down, Bibles confiscated. In Sudan, you know what happens to you in Sudan today? They'll, you're recruited and forced into to work for a Muslim army, if not a warlord, enslaved. By in that Muslim army. In Indonesia today, you might be given a choice by Muslims. Either convert to Muslim, the Muslim Islam, or die. Or I might have my church bombed during a church service. Persecution is very much alive today. 
In Pakistan, I might be jailed by any number of Muslim government officials just because I take the name of Christ. We have to pray for those folks that are going through this. Jesus told his disciples, this is going to happen to you. But just because it doesn't happen to us doesn't give us the right to become lukewarm or complacent in these issues. Let's pray for the persecuted church. In fact, a recent Open Doors organization uh, published a report estimating that, quote, the number of Christians killed uh, for their faith rose to 5,898 in the year 2022 up from the 4,761 in 2021. Afghanistan, North Korea, Somalia, Libya, and Yemen saw the highest rates of persecution globally. They're killing Christians left and right in these countries. Countless millions, by some estimates, 12 to 20 million Christians have perished since the time of Christ. They've been persecuted, killed, and the number continues to rise annually to the present day. Jesus said in verse 12, brother will betray brother to death. That happens in these countries. A father, his child, children will rebel against their parents and have them put to death. All men will hate you because of me, but he who stands firm to the end will be saved. Firm in your faith. Firm in your practice of your faith the sharing of your faith, the reading about your faith in the Holy Scriptures. Stay in God's Word. Because if you don't, you know what happens? It's like a boat that is tied up at a pier and the rope comes loose. The boat just starts drifting. Christians that stop the regular habit of being in God's Word and prayer and praise and worship, they drift. But it happens so slowly they accept it over time as the norm. But it is not. I had an experience one time I, when we were going to school out in California. Bought the kids those little foam rubber, uh, uh, what do they call that? Polystyrene surfboards, little bodyboard, things like that. And I went out there and I thought, well, I'll, I'll teach myself to surf. Well, you can't surf on anything this long, that's for sure. I didn't know that. I was dumb. But I fell asleep on it. Off the, off the hunting, I think we were down at Huntington Pier then. And uh, when I woke up on the board, sure it was a mile away, and I didn't recognize anything there. And I was headed for the oil refineries, and I'm in the open ocean in the shipping lanes on a boogie board that's this long. <laughs> I didn't know. I didn't know. I panicked. Boy, I had no idea where I was. But I thought that if I don't get to shore, it doesn't matter where I am. If I get hit by one of these big ships coming by, uh, I, it was a, a terrifying moment. What happened? I drifted, just drifting with the current, slowly enough and softly enough that it could lull you to sleep, just like Satan is doing to the church today. They're drifting ever so slowly away from the Lord. And Satan never wants you to understand what your truest spiritual condition is. So he'll always lie to you. You're fine. No, you don't read anymore. You don't pray anymore. You go to church when you feel like it. But you're fine. And yet in your, if you have the Holy Spirit of God inside, you know, I'm, I'm really not fine. I'm not where I once was. I'm not where I want to be. 
But you have to be intentional. If you catch yourself drifting, you have to be intentional in tying up the boat back to the pier. That takes an act of intentionality. You've got to get back in the Word of God. You've got to get into praise and worship. You've got to get into fellowship. And all of those opportunities are provided in such a wide variety of wonderful churches in Colorado Springs. But every year, our county becomes more and more adrift from the Lord Jesus Christ. Isn't it amazing? I mean, we just had a, a mayor's election. I don't know who's going to win that. I guess the outcome's decided Tuesday, I think. <clears throat> Do you know how many people turned out for that election percentage-wise? Less than 15%. What's that say about El Paso County? We don't care. We don't care. We'll embrace whoever winds up being. Well, suppose it's a dyed-in-the-wool socialist that hates Jesus Christ with all of his heart. You think, you think he's going to be friendly towards our zoning situation or possibly paying taxes or a thousand other things? You see, lukewarm means uninvolved and uncaring. Don't care about these things. If the Christian community doesn't wake up soon, then we have no one to blame for ungodly officials over us than ourselves. If you choose as a Christian, well, I'm not going to get... Didn't Jesus say, be salt and light? I don't, re I don't recall that he said, except in the area of public elections. You're to be salt and light everywhere. Everywhere you go. But how can you be salt and light if you don't vote for the most righteous candidate? I know it's always a matter of who's the lesser, lesser evil. Okay, it's always been that way since Adam and Eve. But be involved enough. But boy, I, I am amazed at how many people just don't care. They don't fill out their ballots. They don't go, they're just uninvolved. That is the very definition of lukewarm. And Jesus said it'll characterize the last days. But you don't have to be a part of it. It may be all around you, but you don't have to be a part of that slow drift away from the Lord, winding up with God only knows who in all levels of government, if you want godly people making godly and prayerful and careful decisions, you're going to have to get involved. You're going to have to be proactive. Otherwise, you're part of the problem, not the solution. Don't let your personal spiritual boat drift. It will always take you away from the Lord. He is our firm anchor. Now, around which our boat can pivot... That's fine, but he is the anchor to it all. And we've got to stay as close to him as humanly possible. He continues then, verse 13, All men will hate you because of me, but he who stands firm to the end will be saved. And then looking into the future, he said, When you see the abomination that causes desolation, standing where it does not belong, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains underline or, or circle Judea, not the church. The church is not on the earth to see this abomination that causes desolation because it is set up by the Antichrist. You and I will not be here to see him. In fact, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 says, he can't be revealed as long as you and I are here until that restraining influence of the Holy Spirit in and through the church, until that's lifted, he can't be revealed. So it's your presence as a part in interactive with society that we restrain evil. But if the church becomes uncaring and lukewarm, eh, I don't care. 
evil prevails. Edmund Burke, one of our constitutional founding fathers, an important part of, of early America, said all that evil has to do is to prosper is for good men to do nothing. You have to. You're salt and light. That's why you're here. You're a society changer, but you, that means you've got to get involved to do that. You hold the secret to eternal life within you, but if you don't share it, then nobody knows how much Jesus loves them. Don't become impotent because of spiritual drifting. People say, well, I'm sorry, Pastor Jim, I don't read much, but I pray a lot. It says in Acts chapter 2, <laughs> I have my prop. It said in Acts chapter 2 that the early church devoted themselves to four things. I want you to notice carefully because all four of these legs must be of equal length. Do you understand that? Otherwise, you, oh, over you go. Now, if I just break off one of these legs, will you fall? Yep. Does it matter which leg? Nope. The four legs upon which the early church built their strength from, it's, let's just turn there. Keep your finger here in Mark 13. Turn over to Acts chapter 2. The, the early Christians, these 3,000 that just got saved, and they are going to devote themselves to some things, these four things, that need to be just as important to us today. It says in Acts 2.42, you there? Okay. They devoted themselves. That's a strong word in the original language. These early Christians, they devoted themselves to just four things. The apostles' teaching. What was that? The Word of God. The Word of God. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and secondly to the fellowship, like we're doing right here. Fellowship with each other, saying hi and having a cup of coffee and blessing each other. They devoted some thir themselves, thirdly, to the breaking of bread. That's communion. That's communion. It's an important reminder. Jesus said, whenever you do it, do it in remembrance of me. That's what we did this morning. It's a time of recommitment to him. It's a time of consecration, Lord. It's a time of heart searching. Lord, wash, wash and cleanse me and purify me. The fourth thing they devoted themselves to was to prayer. To prayer. The church was open the other day on the International Day of Prayer. I heard more about Cinco de Mayo than I did the day of National Day of Prayer. Everywhere I went, well, happy Cinco de Mayo. I'm not Spanish, so I don't understand the importance of that date. In fact, when I was a kid on May 1st, we danced around a maypole. I, has that got anything to do with Cinco de Mayo? I have no idea. I don't know. I'm just not in touch with that culture, history, or background. It's not mine. I, I, I'm not there. But everybody said, happy Cinco de Mayo. How about National Day of Prayer? I didn't hear one single person ever ask me, about the National Day of Prayer. The church was open all day long. We encourage people to come in and pray. If you get a chance, certainly be praying at home or at work or wherever you find yourself. And the only uh, person that showed up for the National Day of Prayer was my wife. Do you see that that is not in keeping 
with this verse here in Acts 2.42. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, the word of God, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. In fact, Paul would write the church later on, say, pray without ceasing. I mean, be praying in the workplace and at home and the job and be praying everywhere you can. Be praying together, be praying separately. And every one, verse 43, was filled with awe and many wonders and miraculous signs were done by the apostles. Why? Because all four of those things were in perfect balance. It doesn't help if you do three of them, but, it, but chop the other one out from underneath you. Your spiritual walk will fail. You want faith? Be in the Word of God. Devote yourself to these same four things, and you'll be able to face whatever lies ahead. You'll be engaged. You'll be a Jesus-centered person. You'll be filled with His Holy Spirit. You'll have an impact in your neighborhood and in your workplace and in the public arena, but only if you're Spirit-filled. Otherwise, it's so easy to just drift away from the Lord and somehow or another think that that's okay. It's not. It's not. I want you to be a balanced Christian. I know you love Jesus, but are you in the Word of God as much as you are in prayer, in as much as you are in fellowship, and as much as you are in the Word of God? These things have to be in balance. Otherwise... They call that unbalanced. <laughs> you don't want to be an unbalanced Christian. You know, uh, when I have, in times past, flown airplanes, you have to be very cognizant of the center of gravity in your aircraft. Whether it's nose heavy or tail, you've got to trim appropriately. Uh, some of you that fly in here, you could give me lessons on that, I'm sure. But being balanced is everything. Because if you don't, people die on a passenger airplane. You've got to have a balanced airplane. Got to, your fuel has to be balanced between the wing tanks and the header tank in the aircraft if you're flying a small Cessna. Balance is everything. Make sure that you are a balanced Christian. And then come what may, you can handle it. You'll be there. Your faith will be intact. You'll know the Word of God. You'll stand on the promises of God. You'll be praying for other people. You'll be a powerhouse these last days for the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what He's called you and I to, to be powerful, spirit-filled, on-fire Christians. Let's go back to Mark, because he says, when you, verse 14, when you see the abomination that causes desolation, what is that? Well, it's not the abominable snowman. It has nothing to do with that. An abomination is something that's an abomination to God. Something that he thinks is horrible, horrifying, and grossly ungodly. There is an abomination. In fact, in the old King James Version of the, much of the Old Testament, it'll use that word abomination. There were some sins that God deplored, and, but there were a handful of them that he called abominations. So are some sins worse than another? According to God, yes. It'll, all sin can keep you out of heaven if not brought under by the blood of Jesus Christ. But understand this, there were different penalties for different crimes in the Old Testament. So yes, some sins are worse than others. You know, you might steal your little brother's energy drink, you know, but that's not the same as being a mass murderer. Only a fool would treat the two the same. But Jesus said there is a time coming where it's going to be such a, a religious abomination that it will cause desolation. In other words, it will cause people to flee and to run away from this thing. Let's find out what it is. 
It's going to be standing where it does not belong. Let the readers understand. And let those in Judah flee to the mountains. In fact, just east of the Jordan River lie the, the Lebanese range of mountains, or excuse me, the, in Jordan, the Transjordanian mountains there uh, are right across from the Dead Sea. Let no one go to the roof of his house down or take anything out. Let no one in the field go back to his cloak. How dreadful it will be in those days for pregnant women and nursing mothers because they're going to be fleeing. The Judeans are going to be, the Jews are fleeing into the wilderness. So God is, is telling the Jews to anticipate that in the last days. It's something that leaves the land desolate as the people flee in horror. In Daniel 9.27, I'll put that up here for you on the screen. It's important. This is speaking of the end times antichrist. What he will do is he will confirm a covenant with many for one seven-year period. Thank you. I see that 10-minute reminder. Does that mean I've been doing this for 10 minutes or I have 10 minutes to go? I have? No. Feels like I've only been teaching for 10 minutes. I love it. Anyway, the Antichrist will confirm a, a covenant with many for one seven-year period. In the middle of that seven-year period, he will put an end to sacrifice and offering and at the temple. Stop right there. That tells you, first of all, the Antichrist has to go into a rebuilt temple that is not standing today. The Jews desperately want to rebuild the temple but when I have asked people high up in Israeli archaeology centers and Temple Mount organizations, how do you know if you've rejected Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, how do you know the Messiah when he comes? You know what I've been told universally? He'll allow us to rebuild our temple. No, the Antichrist will allow you. You've already dismissed the Christ, the true Messiah, so you will embrace the false one. Why? Because you have drifted away from God. And that's why Jesus warned his disciples, don't be deceived. If you have wandered away from the Lord, you are an easy target for the devil's deceptions. So he will allow... He'll allow the temple to be rebuilt, and there will be sacrifice and offering. But halfway through that seven-year great tribulation period, at the temple he will set up an abomination that causes desolation. That's what Jesus is talking about. Until the end that is decreed is poured out upon him. What is that abomination that causes desolation? If we could look at Daniel 11 and verse 31... His armed forces will rise up to desecrate the temple fortress and abolish the daily sacrifice. Then they will set up the abomination that causes desolation. What took place there? That's a reference to Antiochus Epiphanes IV, who in 168, he was the last, one of the last of the Seleucid rulers, uh, he decided, I'm going to so rub the Jews' face in it, I'm going to slaughter a pig on their altar, and inside their most holy temple, I'm going to erect, erect a statue to Zeus. He profaned the temple. It was later reclaimed by the Maccabees in what's called the Maccabean Revolt. took four years to get there. And for a hundred years, the Maccabees uh, ruled. But he was the one who set up originally that, that abomination that causes desolation. There's another one coming. This is a foreshadow regionally what is going to happen globally by the end times global ruler known as the Antichrist. This is the near fulfillment, but not the complete fulfillment. 
The end fulfillment, it completes it all. But this looks forward to, in fact, there was another time under Caesar, uh, one of the Caesars named Caligula decided he was going to have a statue of himself and shipped it from Rome over to Palestine. And he wanted to set up an image of himself in the temple to be worshipped. Fortunately, he died and the, the project was never completed. But that would have caused an abomination that causes desolation. Another one's coming. Who will allow the Jews to rebuild their temple? Well, the Antichrist says he's going to make a covenant with many for that seven-year period. All they got to do is, is put up a wall between the dome of the rock where the Muslims worship and allow the Jews to rebuild their temple on the original temple mount. It could happen in a matter of days. Nobody has been able to bring peace to the Middle East yet. Imagine, the Antichrist will. And he'll do it by placating Jews and settling the Palestinian situation. All in one fell swoop. Nobody has yet thought, well, put up a, a wall and let the Jews and the Muslims worship. Nobody's ever thought to do that. But biblically, that's exactly what will happen. The Jews will rebuild the temple following an arrangement facilitated by this charismatic, probably European leader. He'll make a covenant, breaks it after three and a half years, and then sets up that abomination that Daniel talked about, a statue or an icon of himself, and stop sacrifices because those have to do with sacrificing to God. I'm going to wrap up with this. <clears throat> In 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 3 and 4, it says the Antichrist will come to the temple and show himself as God with signs and wonders, etc., to deceive even the elect, if possible. Don't let anyone deceive you. Jesus is telling the church this all the time. He told his disciples, don't be deceived. He's telling the church today, don't be deceived, because if you drift away, you're an easy target for deception. Stay close. Be in the Word of God. Be in prayer. Be in fellowship. Celebrate communion regularly, acknowledging the body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, and then you won't be deceived. But I'm surprised today how many Christians, because they're not in the Word of God, are easily deceived by the cults that are knocking on your door. Two by two, riding their little bicycles, toting their bags, knocking on your door, telling you this is the, the true path. You say, well, they're nice folks. I guess what they're saying is true. If nice was all it took people to get to heaven, then all of you are going to heaven whether you know Jesus Christ or not. It is the blood of Jesus Christ and your surrender to his lordship that gives us our ticket to heaven. In Daniel 11.31, it was Antiochus Epiphanes slaughtering that pig. That was the abomination that causes desolation. But in 2 Thessalonians, this is so key, don't let anyone deceive you in any way, for that day will not come until the rebellion occurs and the man of lawlessness, that's the Antichrist, is revealed. Man doomed to destruction. That word rebellion on the third line there is in the Greek, hey, apostasia. Sounds like apostasy, doesn't it? What is that? A drifting away from the word, from Jesus Christ, from daily devotions. Apostasy is a great falling away, and that would be a much better interpretation than the word rebellion. Are Christians falling away today? COVID provided the perfect excuse for 50% of the church, at least in El Paso County, to leave church and never return. It's not like they're going to other churches. They just stopped going to church. You know people that have. They've just, what, what happened? They drifted 
They got away from the Lord. So we know what the end times Antichrist is going to do, but Jesus speaks of him in Mark 13 as yet being future. Nebuchadnezzar had set up a statue himself 600 years before Christ and, and through the Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fiery furnace when they refused to worship his image. Antiochus tried that in 168. He is a type also of the Antichrist. Caligula tried it in 40 AD, but they're all foreshadows of the soon-to-be-revealed Antichrist. You and I won't be here to see it. I'll just encourage you to read 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 yourself. As long as the church is here restraining evil because of our participation in society, as soon as that's removed, the Antichrist will be revealed instantly. I believe with all of my heart that he's alive today. You realize we have never faced the threat of nuclear annihilation until within our own lifetimes. Until the advent of the nuclear bomb, you couldn't kill a quarter of the Earth's population in an hour, but that happens in Revelation 6. Half of those survivors later die in another nuclear exchange. Not possible until the advent of the nuclear age. We're living with Armageddon on the near horizon. I just want to challenge you to be ready. It is coming. It is coming. And as we gravitate further and further away from God as a nation, as our leadership embraces more and more of the thinking of socialistic fathers like Trotsky and Lenin and Stalin, understand they, those democracies in Rome and in Greece before them all devolved into an end times ruler. We live in those times again. We're living in those times again. Don't think it's just a slip of society that, that people in government are using this word socialist or socialism. It is the, going to be the death of our democracy, and it will lead to the rise of the Antichrist as the government assumes more and more and more and more and more power and control. That's what's going on. What is at stake is your soul. You realize the local government, all they got to do is shut down half the churches in El Paso County to start taxing them. With the nation now $32 trillion in debt, it's only a matter of time before they come after the churches, and it'll close half the churches in America. It's coming. I want you to be ready for that spiritually. Come what may, Jesus is still on the throne. He's taking his church out of here someday. The judgment of God has not appointed us under wrath. He has not appointed us under wrath. And the book of Revelation is a book of wrath. We're not going to be here for that. We get raptured. We get taken in a twinkling of an eye. And I can't, I can't wait for that. All right. Well, let's have a word of praise. And praise man. Why don't you close us out in song? Heavenly Father. Whew. There's a lot of information here. I don't want it to scare anybody, but I want it to motivate everybody to be more in your word. More in prayer, more in fellowship, more in, into celebrating communion and realizing what these precious elements remind us of. You bled and died for us. You allowed your body to be beaten and tortured. By your stripes we are healed, Isaiah said. So we pray that you would touch us, 
make us a spirit-filled, on-fire, Bible-reading, gospel-sharing bunch of people that have a real impact in our homes, in our societies, in our workplaces. Help us to be engaged, Lord, vigorously these last days and standing up for what is right and recognizing what is wrong when we see it. We love you with all of our hearts, Lord. Make us like you. In Jesus' name, Father. Amen.